Hello, everyone joining. I'm Caben, your guest host today from the Oxford Political Review. And this week on the podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by John Dunn, who is Emeritus Professor of Political Theory at King's College, Cambridge, where he's taught for over 50 years. Professor Dunn's work has ranged widely over the history of political thought, from the thought of John Locke to theories of political obligation, and has also been a leading figure in the Soto Cambridge School methodological approach to the study of political thought. However, his most substantive scholarly engagement over the years has been with democracy as both an idea and as an historical process, on which he has written a number of important books, including Breaking Democracy's Spell and Setting the People Free. So today, Professor Dunn is going to speak about the pitfalls and promises of democracy, beginning in the unavoidable context of the present pandemic, before widening out more broadly to where democracy might be headed in the near future. Thanks again for joining us today. So my first question is about the pandemic in light of which something of a tension has emerged in everyday political discourse between democracy and technocratic expertise, and with politicians and publics often heeding to and critiquing scientific experts. Kind of orthogonal to this as well, we've seen a tendency towards comparisons of different state performances in responding to the pandemic. So between successful democracies like Germany and South Korea, and unsuccessful ones supposedly like Italy and the US as well as comparisons between democratic states and autocratic states like China as general categories. So, you know, what does the present crisis tell us about democracy as a form of government? And can it explain in part why some governments have responded to the coronavirus pandemic better than others? Yes, I think it definitely has. um, It's definitely relevant to explain the disparities between different countries' experience. And uh, so obviously relevant what sort of governmental structure they have. So I think you can't understand why any society has responded to the pandemic in the way it does without recognising how it works as a society and how it works as a political order. And the fact is that democracies and autocracies work very varyingly as political orders. Some barely work at all, others work really quite remarkably well from many points of view. I don't think any form of political order is likely to work very well from every possible point of view. But um, it is clear that there are some major advantages to having a very effective autocratic structure, and there are some major advantages to having a very effective democratic structure. So the countries which have done well, um, I would say, all have some sorts of merit as a political order. I don't myself care for the Chinese political structure at all. I think it's a very oppressive and very unpleasant political structure. But it does, it has had a record of remarkable achievements in quite a lot of ways. And that achievement is connected with the way the governmental structure works. I mean, one thing which is obviously a major practical help is that the government of China can make people do things much more drastically than a government of any possible democratic country could. If a democratic country's government tells its people that they must behave in a particular way, whether or not they do will depend on how plausible they find the instruction. The Chinese population, to quite a large degree over questions about whether or not they may leave their house, don't ask themselves whether the reasons the government give for instructing them not to are plausible, unless they're exceptionally transgressive and confident people. They just do what they're told, because they know that actually it will be very unpleasant for them if they don't. I think the population of the United Kingdom knows that if the British government tells it to do something, the chances of it being very unpleasant for them are slight. 
and the chances of it being unpleasant at all are maybe worth the risk depending on what they want to do. Even such a crass comparison as autocracy and democracy doesn't come out unequivocally on the side of democracy. But the countries which have done really well in the face of the virus, we don't know how well China has done in some very important sense because you can't find out. I think it's probable that the Chinese government has a pretty accurate sense of how well it's done although that may be a medically incompetent judgment. But the fact is no one outside China can find that out. Obviously, even inside China, it's an imperfect estimate. I would say it's probably quite a lot better than the British government's potential estimate because the Chinese government has a lot of different information sources and it pools the information about this sort of thing quite effectively. And it does so because it is actually a very repressive structure and it's also a very highly organised structure. You can be very repressive and almost completely disorganized, but the Chinese structure in many ways is very organized. I think what is very, very important is the comparison between what happened in China and what happened in Taiwan. It's absolutely clear that Taiwan has done spectacularly well in the face of the virus in comparison with practically any other democratic country. And it has because it actually is very democratic. No society is just democracy wall to wall in every respect. The idea of democratizing a society is a very ambitious idea and perhaps in the last instance not a completely coherent idea. Anyway, Taiwan is actually a very democratic country and it's also a very well-educated country and it's got a very good communication structure. The Taiwanese population are very good at cooperating and they do cooperate a lot for all sorts of different reasons. They're perfectly capable of being very uncooperative if they choose to be so. But obviously, in the face of a pandemic, they trusted their government to do its best. They trusted the sort of advice they were getting predominantly, and they responded as they were enjoined to, and things worked extremely well. They've done an enormous amount of testing, and of course, they partly were so well set up to do the testing because they'd already prepared to do so in the face of the SARS epidemic. I mean, obviously, Britain was not prepared, properly it's become clear now, because it didn't have have a directly comparable viral threat. South Korea has done pretty well too. It's actually a more autocratic society, even though from a constitutional point of view, it's a democracy and it's a real democracy, all right. But it has a very, very disciplined population and a population which I would say is accustomed to being disciplined externally and not just internally. I and mean, in some ways, I mean, Taiwan, when I said it was very democratic, I mean that actually very, very strikingly from being an extremely dictatorial structure, it has loosened up in a way in which people do actually see the idea of common good as a vividly motivating consideration. It's a much more uh, shaky motivational uh, force, I think, in South Korea. So if you think of a society's political point of view as structures for coordinating, to coordinate democratically, you need people really to want to do so. You need a lot of the population to wish mm. to do so. And you need a lot of the population to have whatever skills are required to cooperate in the way that's relevant. Both of them are more set up to respond promptly than the United Kingdom is. 
I haven't studied it carefully, the comparative experience of different countries because it's very information intensive and I have other things to do. But I think it's pretty clear that the Scandinavian countries, although they've adopted quite different sort of strategic approaches to their disease, have done pretty well. Obviously, the Swedish approach is much more hazardous, audacious than the Danish one. But I think that Sweden is in some ways a very disciplined society too, and a very democratic society. If you can combine both characteristics in a population, then I would say that the democratic society was better placed in the long run to deal with this sort of threat. As I said, we don't really know how well China is dealing with it. What we do know is that the Chinese threat, once the Chinese government recognized the threat and started responding to it, that the Chinese response was very strikingly effective. And we do also know that, unfortunately, that has not turned out to be true in this country, and it's not turned out to be true in Italy, and it's not turned out to be true in Spain, and it's not turned out to be true in Belgium. I think comparisons beyond that, I mean, you just need to know a lot more than I do to actually learn from them from a political point of view. Obviously, it's going to be an enormous amount of analysis of this in due course. Presumably, some of the analysis will be actually very deeply informative. I think we can be pretty confident there'll be very good analysis in Germany. We can be pretty confident there'll be very good analysis in Sweden and probably in Holland and so on. But there will be potentially quite a political fight about how good the analysis is here because the British government obviously did not do the best things throughout. And it's not clear how far back in time you need to go to look at the structure of the NHS and ordering practices for equipment and so on. But it is clear that there's quite a lot to explain away in the British case. And I would say it would be very good indeed if, in fact, the British investigation of exactly how well we've done turned out to be extremely thorough and completely convincing. Well, it would be very hard for it to be completely convincing because people will want to believe different things about it. There isn't any excuse for it not being in the British case in the way that a sort of excuse is always somehow or other dredged up over something like the Chilcot inquiry, the invasion of Iraq. I think that's probably enough of that particular question, but (laughs) it's a question which is going to run and run. It will be pretty central to British politics for the next five years, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. So broadening it out, so in recent years, especially since the election of Donald Trump and the rise of this so-called populism across the world, however you want to understand it. We've had something of a cottage industry diagnosing the potential end of democracy or, you know, the death of democracy, the decline of democracy and so on. In light of your work being incredibly historical, what do you think the long-term prospects of democratic politics might be? And are reports like this of its death greatly exaggerated? Well, I think it's in uh, different, as it were, medical conditions in different countries. I certainly would say it's in danger of dying in uh, quite a lot of European countries. It hasn't done well for quite a long time on balance. And there are a number of different sorts of reasons why it hasn't done well. One reason, which is very obvious why it hasn't done well, is because the basic political economy that it's situated within is one which is very imperfectly understood by anyone. And in which the responses of governments across most democratic countries haven't been very felicitous. So we've been in a state of quasi-crisis economically for a long time now. And the idea that we're going to get out of one 
in the reasonably near future is obviously absurd. So it's under a great deal of strain. And you could say, well, that's not really strain on democracy, is it? Or why should it be strain on democracy? And the answer to that is, well, it's a strain on any form of political order. I mean, it would be a strain on autocracy. It's nothing to do with a democracy isn't a sort of magical political drug. I mean, it's just a way of organizing collective life in relation to coercion. It doesn't have really a very steady relationship to an understanding of economic causality. There's nothing about democracy which equips a population necessarily to think sensibly about economics, and there's nothing about a basically a capitalist society which actually strongly motivates most people to think very sensibly about it. It's not a good learning structure. You have to spend a lot of time trying to understand things which are not particularly thrilling to try to understand, and you also have to endure, if you do understand, that this is not a just or a generous system. There's absolutely nothing just or generous about it. I think it's been a tough time for democratic structures because they are not well placed to respond to protracted economic failure. I don't think they would be better placed to respond to protracted economic failure if they were more autocratic. And I think the idea of technocracy, in particular on the economic front, is rather treacherous because the basic problem isn't that idiots are making economic policy. It's that actually nobody really knows how to make economic policy very well. And there are quite powerful interests in um, pressing economic approaches which are liable to come out very badly. So it's more a problem of comprehension, in my view, fundamentally, from the point of view of democracy, the amount of strain that comes from economic causality as such. And I, I don't think we will be, as it were, back into blithe, calm waters again until, in fact, uh, we work out and implement slightly more successful economic policies than we've had for some time. We haven't really had uh, very successful economic policies uh, going back at least uh, 20 years. I don't think we want to think of 2007 to eight as a sort of accident. I don't myself think that there's anything that has happened in the last 30 years technically, and certainly there isn't anything that could have happened, as it were, spiritually, which means that actually democracies can't work well in the future. What I think is to work really well in the future, they will need to have politically better educated citizen bodies than they have in most cases at this point. They will need to have citizens who have a much better idea about what is actually going on around them. I mean, the complaint about populism, populism is just democratic outcomes you don't like the character of. I don't mean I don't think there are lots of dreadful people who are reasonably called populists. I just mean it's not really an analytical category at all. Yeah. It's a sort of unpleasant political style. But it's also a symptom of protracted political failure. You don't have a nasty populist leader anywhere which is going well politically. To go into a story in the case of a particular society, you need to understand well why things get as bad as they've got at a particular time. You need to recognize a lot of features of that society. You can't read it all the fact that people spend more time on the internet or something like that. 
And you can't actually read it off the fact that more of them are unemployed. You can tell that in this country until after all, just before this happened, rather less of them were unemployed than have been for most of my lifetime. And what is true is that the quality of employment for rather a large proportion of the British employed population has deteriorated quite a lot in the last 10 years. But that's a different sort of issue. It's nothing to do with democracy. I mean, democracy is not a way of fixing bad social and economic outcomes. It's a way in which politically alert and informed population could set about collectively trying to do so in a sensible way. There's nothing about the choice structure, the opportunity of every few years to change a government. There's nothing about that which converges on good outcomes. It's a problem what to do, especially economically, and democracy is not a very good problem-solving structure. Neither is autocracy. There's nothing good about autocracy as a problem-solving structure. Autocrats face problems, and the fact that the Chinese government has done as well as it has over the last 40 years is an indication that actually that structure is a much better problem-solving structure than the analogous structure in the United States, for example. Okay, so kind of linked to that, the past question, we've had um, these kind of analyses of democracy's prospects have often been based on appeals to historical analogies. We often hear kind of crude comparisons to the state of democracy today, to the crisis of the 1930s, perhaps to grow even more so with the kind of global recession on the horizon. So you've argued frequently for the need for a deep engagement with history for an understanding of contemporary politics. I wonder if you could speak on how helpful you think analogies with the past are for understanding the future and what history can tell us about contemporary politics. A lot depends on exactly how you think about something being an analogy. I think it's not true that you can inspect a particular bit of the past, look at the present and see what you must do or what you mustn't do. It's unlikely to be very helpful. I think that the right way to think about it is, first of all, you have to say, what exactly is your alternative to learning from history? I mean, what else do you think there might be to learn from? That's what we have available to us to learn from. And the question is how to audition history intelligently for purposes of political judgment. And I'm afraid that that's not a sort of quick and crisp If you want to learn to think well about politics, you need to learn a great deal. You need to be quite patient and you need to recognize that actually picking up the intersecting causalities which determine political outcomes requires you to use a very broad screen and to think about a lot of different sorts of considerations. I think history can show people how to widen their imaginations and to recognize the variety of causal forces which converge in particular historical outcomes. Politics is a very particular business. It's dangerous in politics to be too overconfident, to have a general belief system which will tell you what to do. They are sort of bull-in-a-china-shop approaches to political action. I mean, they tell people what to do in ways in which very much too little of the existing situation registers as being pertinent. If you've learnt your economics from Hayek and you're let loose in 10 Downing Street, I mean, you can do a hell of a lot of harm very fast indeed. It's generally true that economists could do with acquainting themselves with more features of the world than feature in economic thinking structures. What will tend to be true of people who, in my view, have formed their political judgments well is you don't need to do so 
by studying history. I mean, you could do so by doing politics and actually paying very, very careful attention to lots of things that you won't actually have an immediate reward for paying attention to. It depends on how you approach politics. And the fact is we have very shallow politicians now in this country in comparison with 50 years ago. I mean, on average, very shallow. And uh, we have very few really impressive politicians right across the board. It's not a party political point. Now, you can explain historically how that's come about, but I think that goes to the same sort of issue as I was trying to point to when I said that societies aren't going to work well democratically unless we have better politically educated citizen bodies. I mean, I think it's definitely been true that the quality of political comprehension of the British population has deteriorated. It's not deteriorated because people know fewer facts or people are still It's deteriorated because the structures through which they try to understand politics have deteriorated. If you looked at either of the great political parties 75 years ago, you would have found in them, first of all, structures which reached right across the society and incorporated a very large number of people and reached deep down into communities. You would have found a lot of people who were people of very broad intellectual sensibility and a lot of experience of life, which I think helps a great deal in politics. It's dangerous to be too narrow in politics. It's dangerous to go into politics and not really know about anything at all. I think that it is really time that we recognise that the uh, role of a citizen in a democracy is a role which has requirements and that it's both essential for uh, educational structure to ensure that people, by the time they are adults and can exercise the franchise, do actually understand a lot about the basic framework within which they're living. And that, unfortunately, is not something which has been achieved by British education in the last 50 years or so. And at the same time, I mean, the quality of public media has very much deteriorated. And I think it is right that there are particular sort of structural tendentiousness in social media, which are difficult to deal with. And I don't think we've learned good defensive practices in relation to those yet. But they're not a substitute for social media for actually reliable public information, shared information. That has to be something that reaches citizens, and it won't reach citizens unless they're listening for it. Mm. And they need to be shown that they do need to listen for it. So I don't think that democracy has a you know, happy uh, short-term future unless it wakes up a bit. That's a collective need. It's not a need for, I think of many people, it would be particularly good if they woke up in particular respects, but it's not just that we could do with a rather better political class. It's actually we all need to have a better sense of what's going on. So far, we've talked about the more analytical or historical aspects of democracy, but another feature of your work is the normative aspect of democracy. There's this kind of story told that all over the world, democracy as a term has come to be conceived as an almost uniquely legitimate form of politics. You know, even autocratic states proclaim their regimes to be democratic in spirit. I mean, it's even in, you know, the names of their uh, their states. But you've argued that in some senses, democracy is not as perfect as many would hope to believe in reality. And you've even likened it to a kind of spell that needs to be broken. So what do you think the problems and pitfalls of democracy are? And do you think there are any realistic alternatives to it today? 
I'm afraid there are, in a sense, realistic alternatives to it in some places, and they're actually in place. But I don't think they're uh, unequivocally desirable alternatives to it. Uh, so let's start off at the normative end, because I think it's possible to be reasonably clear about that. Democracy isn't one clear idea. And actually, in the first instance, it isn't a normative idea. What's happened to it, historically speaking, was that it began just as a description of a particular way of organising politics in one particular sort of, very particular sort of society. And it essentially disappeared from the world as a sort of active idea for a very, very long time when that form of society stopped. And when it came back into the world, it came back because the two principal political structures which had dominated the world in the interim, monarchy and aristocracy, were both under very considerable political pressure. And it came back not as a clear practical answer to what to do, but as a pressing of the question of how what had become objectionable about monarchy and aristocracy could be remedied. The process of turning that dissatisfaction into a, a set of institutional structures took actually a long time, and it happened faster in some places than in others. But it is true, really, that by now, the idea that either monarchy or aristocracy is a decisive alternative to democracy has collapsed over most of the world. I mean, it's not collapsed in Saudi Arabia, and it's not collapsed in the Emirates, and it's not collapsed in Brunei, but it's collapsed in pretty much everywhere else. And that's actually a very large change. It's collapsed not because it was a rotten idea in the first place. It's collapsed because it doesn't have internal repair features. So if you think about autocracies today, if you look at those autocracies, the reason they definitely wish to describe themselves in some way or other as democracies is because they claim to be ruling not just on behalf of their citizens, it isn't producing good outcomes for their population, but they claim that somehow or other it's true that their population is what has caused them to be ruling. Now, that is a very difficult thing to show to be true by any mechanism other than the mechanism that Western democracies have established. I mean, if you have a regular occasion on which people can choose whether or not they are going to go on being ruled by the same people, that is actually a very strong reason for a government to claim authority. I mean, there's no better basis to claim authority on than that you've been chosen by the people you're exercising your authority over. You can say, if you don't like what we're doing, it's your fault. I mean, you've chosen us and now we're here and you can't choose again for a bit or choose someone else. You just have to do what you've been told. Democracies in the Western interpretation have not just, as it were, a normatively powerful authorizing basis. It's also true that it's extremely difficult for any autocratic regime to have the same. Even the most, say, infamous autocratic regime, like the North Korean regime, even that is very anxious to claim democracy. What else, as it were, could its excuse be for ruling? I mean, the Chinese government have not had the opportunity to interrogate members of the Chinese government. So this is sort of invention, really. But the Chinese government, I think, is pretty confident that it's done pretty well. 
in lots of ways and that it's still coping pretty well. It knows there are all sorts of ways in which it hasn't done well, but all governments have large failures and China was a phenomenally poor country in 1949. And actually, it still had better public health in 1979, but, you know, a lot of other things were in a great mess. So it is really just 40-plus years now that it's been governing pretty effectively, and it knows that that's a basis on which its population, as it were, in addition to the fear it manages to induce in them, is actually wearily reconciled to it. Now, of course, not all of the population is wearily reconciled to it. It has some very active enemies, people who hate it and despise it. I don't know how many of there are of those, and I doubt actually even the Chinese government knows. It's not something you put on your card. But what's certainly true is that there are enthusiasts for some version of the point of the Chinese revolution in China now. I suppose the thing which is difficult for us to think about seriously is some of the confidence of the Chinese government comes from the knowledge that in 1949 China was in a very dire way and that in 1899 China was in a very dire way and in 18 50, China was in a pretty dire way, and it's not in anything like as dire a way now. And actually, the COVID thing is going to reinforce that on balance. It was a bit touch and go initially, because obviously what happened initially was rather straightforwardly disgraceful. And of course, some people have duly been disgraced. But disgrace stops at a certain point as you go up the structure. You don't get disgraced at the top and go into sort of polite retirement. Probably the more challenging part of the question is, I mean, what is there in democracy besides, as it were, some sort of address to the question of authorization of government, which gives it a sort of inspirational charge? And how thoroughly ravaged by what's actually happened in democracies has that become? My views about this aren't really very conventional. I mean, I think that there is something in the fundamental idea of a society choosing together over as wide a range as is practicable. I think that that picture of a society is a more attractive picture of a society than any other picture of a society. It's in danger of making no sense if you don't, as it were, discipline it a bit by inserting it into a bit of historical actuality. But the idea that things would be better if, in fact, there was more choice of a responsible kind in the structuring of collective life, that is a very powerful idea normatively, I think. It's readily mistaken for a lot of other ideas which are not actually powerful at all. For example, that it's, you know, be really great for everyone to be able to do exactly what they wanted whenever they wanted for however foolish a reason they may have had for wanting it. Autonomy is quite a, a stringent ideal, really. It's not the same as, you know, just never inhibiting yourself and then sort of generalising that across the population. The thought that that would be a good thing, I think, was effectively refuted by Hobbes some time ago. <laughs> it's not that democracy as a, a general social project is very clearly directive, but there is something really quite inspiring about it. And in face of the obviously bad features of societies, of which there always are plenty, it's not very clearly directive. I think of it more as a sort of continuing critical pressure on current social arrangements rather than as a sort of recipe for how to act. I don't think it is directive, but it is a critical ideal of a certain kind.